0: So many historians have focused on the role of John Pym in early Stuart politics and especially in the outbreak of the Civil War. Historians' outlooks on the nature of Pym's role have changed over the generations and in this section we look at some of the major contributions and how experts' views of Pym have transformed over time. We're in a good position to do this now because of the publication of the History of Parliament volumes recently so it's a great pleasure for me to welcome again here Dr Stephen Roberts, the Emeritus Director of the History of Parliament Trust and Editor of the House of Commons 1640-1660 section. Perhaps you could please start, Stephen, by telling us what the History of Parliament is.
1: Well, thank you, Andy. Yes, the History of Parliament volumes have recently been published for the 1640 60 period. The History of Parliament is a long-standing reference work Which is in effect a biographical dictionary of all the MPs who ever sat in the House of Commons over a very long period. And the volumes that have been published recently contain 1,805 biographies, running to over seven million words in total. And it's the largest reference work on the English Civil War period that's ever been written. And so John Pym is an important ingredient in that biographical dictionary.
0: Yes, I was going to say, Stephen, you must have written a great many of those biographies, and one of them, of course, was John Pym, and that must have been quite a job taking that on. How long was the entry for John Pym, and how does that compare with the average entry for most MPs?
1: Well, Pym's biography turned out to be a total of 46,000 words in the end, and it's one of the largest, if not the largest, I think it probably is the largest one, in the volumes. And it's much, much longer than most other biographies are. It's longer, I think, than Oliver Cromwell's biography even. So it is a major one. I think the average figure for a History of Parliament biography would
0: be around three to 4,000 words. So Pym is in a class of his own, really. So when you began your research writing the biography of Pym for the History of Parliament, did you start with the primary sources or were you shaped, at least in part by what previous historians have written about him? Well, every
1: biography for the history of Parliament goes back to primary sources, and Pym was no exception. Pym poses challenges for the biographer because he's left no significant body of papers or letters or anything like that. And the record of Pym's activities in Parliament has to be built up quite painstakingly, really, from the official record. So probably the single most important source for Pym is the House of Commons journal, whereas every action can be traced practically, and then, of course, set in context by what we know of all the other MPs' activities. So it took quite a long time to do it, and the reason that Pym's biography is so
0: long is that the official record is so plentiful about Pym. So let's now turn to what historians have made of Pym, and perhaps we should start with the American academic J.H. Hexter, who famously wrote The Reign of King Pym, published in 1941. So researching in the 1930s then, what kind of man did Hexter present Pym as? Hexter did
1: 17th century studies a huge favour by publishing that book, and it brought Pym from out of the shadows, really, and put him centrally on the stage of the historiography. And he wrote a very, very lively book about Pym, with ideas that persisted for a very long time. I mean, it was a long and enduring book, and well worth reading now, even though its conclusions have been challenged subsequently. And what Hexter did in the volume was to make Pym centre stage. He he put him as the person who invented the parliamentary machinery that was used against Charles I in the Civil War. And he made Pym the person who, above all else, welded together a group of politicians to form a kind of
0: party called the Middle Group. So... Moving on a couple of generations into the 1980s and 1990s when Hexter's views came under attack from historians like Conrad Russell and John Morrell, I think in 95, John Morrell wrote a famous chapter on the unweariableness of Mr. Pym. What were the, historians like that? What were their objections to Hexter's portrayal of Pym? The recent historiography
1: did a lot to take Pym down, as it were, remove him from his throne as as King Pym, and to make him see him rather as an important person, but not particularly paramount. Historians have done that in various ways. In the case of John Morrill, what John did was to show how Pym's primary activity was as a kind of messenger between the lords and the commons, which was, of course, very true. It was an important part of Pym's activities. But I think setting the whole thing in context, I think some of the attempts to diminish Pym went too far. And the overall impact of my biography in the history of Parliament is
0: to restore him a bit to where he was before. And then more recently than Morrell and Russell, we had John Adamson's book in 2007, The Noble Revolt, which of course stressed the role of leading parliamentarian nobleman in the downfall of Charles I. Hmm. such as the earls of Essex, Warwick and Northumberland. What was Pym's relationship like with these noblemen? Was he merely their lackey or was he something more than that? John Adamson was very careful to make Pym not the
1: lackey of the peers, but nevertheless, people have read into the book The Noble Revolt an attempt to make Pym a kind of client figure of the aristocrats. And I don't think that quite captures the relationship There were MPs in the House of Commons who were men of business, to use the contemporary phrase, whose job really was to serve aristocratic interests. I don't think anybody could say that of Pym. Pym had close working relations with a number of the leading peers, but it wasn't one of client and patron. It was much more equal than that. And I think any attempt to see him as a client figure is wide of the mark. What Pym does is to bring together and make close working between the two houses of Parliament, more effective. So he's a kind of go-between who has equally good relations in both houses of Parliament, really.
0: So in addition to writing this mammoth biography of Pym, you've also written an article for Parliamentary History entitled King Pym and His Happy Scrappy Jester. Could you um, reflect on your findings in that article, which of course reviews Hexter and the responses to him, and why you chose that memorable title for the article.
1: Well, the Happy Scrappy Jester title comes from one of the tributes made to Hexter on his own retirement by one of his American colleagues. And because Hexter's most famous book has King Pym in the title, I thought it would be a nice counterpoise to that as a reflection on both Hexter and on Pym in the same article. And what the article is trying to do, really, is to assess... Hexter, but also to look forward to the biography in the history of Parliament, or indeed the history of Parliament's take on Pym as a whole. And Hexter had two main ideas. One was that Pym had invented the machinery by which Parliament fought the king, the administrative machinery of the Civil War, and that Pym had also invented, or was a key figure in the evolution of a political group called the middle group. And if we can just start by saying what the middle group was, people know about the peace party and the war party, i.e. those in favor of prosecuting the war vigorously against the king and those in favor of making peace. Hexter's thesis was that there was another group called the middle group, which was involved in terms of a realignment of these forces. So you have three groups in Parliament, in the House of Commons anyway, by the middle of 1643. And what the history of Parliament's volumes show, not just my biography of Pym, or what they try to show, is that the middle group didn't really exist. What we find is that Pym was committed to the war party pretty much all through his career, and that he wanted to do nothing more than force, by whatever means, force the king to the table to come up with a settlement that was satisfactory to the what he saw as the Protestant interests of England and eventually Scotland too. So there was no sense in which we found that the middle group really existed. The other key finding of Hexter's work was that Pym was a deviser or a, an inventor of the administrative machinery which was used to fight Charles I by Parliament. And there, the overall conclusion of the biographies in the History of Parliament volumes is that Pym can't be seen as the inventor of these various committees. Other people were more important, none more so than John Wilde, who was a Droitwich man, a lawyer who is responsible for a number of the key pieces of legislation that were used to create committees and administrative machinery to fight the king. So Pym can't be seen as the inventor of the machinery that was used against the king in the Civil War, John Wilde was more important. So on these two important planks of Hexter's work, uh, crucial works, the middle group and Pym as the inventor of legislation, neither of these finds favour now. So we consider that Hexter's work has effectively been superseded.
0: So can you summarise to listeners what you think the key conclusions of your own new history of Parliament biography on John Pym are? And Perhaps in what ways they're different from Hexter's and Morrill's views of the man?
1: Well, to start with Morrill's view, I think what we conclude really is that Pym certainly was an important go-between the houses. But that was not simply as a messenger, but as a manager. And if you widen the scope to look at the overall evidence of Pym's activities in the Commons, we find that there's hardly any aspect of Parliament's activities in the House of Commons that Pym isn't active and leading in. He's much more a leading administrative and political figure than Morrill gives him credit for being. And I think Pym's crucial characteristic as a politician is vision and the capacity to forward his vision in practical ways by making alliances. He's a great person for bringing people together, to reaching out to bring together people in different ways, to bring them on board, and you can see that in all sorts of ways. His tireless activity to bring the Scots into the Civil War, his tireless activity to reach out to the City of London to make the relations between Parliament and the city so effective. Even his capacity to bring together the warring factions in the Civil War, the generals, who were very difficult to deal with, Pym was quite effective in trying to build bridges between the Earl of Essex, who was a very difficult character, and Sir William Waller, who was the champion of the City of London. Pym works hard to try and make those two individuals work together. So he's constantly there trying to bring people together. And no more, a better example is his capacity to make the Lords and the Commons work together. So wherever you find Pym, he's working for unity, really. And um, he has a view of unity, that he tries to persist despite all the fractures of unity going on around him. So I think that's his main contribution. He has a vision and the capacity to
0: see his vision through. He was sorely missed by the parliamentarians after his death. So I probably shouldn't ask this after you've just written a 46,000 word (laughs) biographical entry, but is there room for fresh research on John Pym and what directions in the future might that take?
1: Well, Andy, a historian's research is never done, as it were. There's always a new story to be taken. We don't know very much at all about the legacy of Pym. I don't think that's ever been studied properly. In other words, how the different ages after his own considered Pym. There must be work to be done there. Work has been done on Cromwell in that respect. There's got to be scope there for more work. But also my colleagues in the History of Parliament Trust, I've now retired, but the colleagues are now working on the House of Lords and so there'll be more to be said about Pym's relations with the Lords even more than I found out from a Lord's point of view. So those are two major ways in which somebody will be able to study John Pym in the future.
0: Thanks very much for those pointers Stephen and a really good overview of how historians views about this crucial man have changed. Thank you very much Andy.